what would you like to have written on your tombstone? Don't have to say it out loud. But what would you like to have written on your gravestone? And I say would like to have written because the truth is, once you're dead, it's really out of your control, isn't it? Friends, whether you like it or not, what is written on your tombstone or your gravestone is going to be what others thought about you. For example, one tombstone in England reads this, the children of Israel wanted bread and the Lord sent them manna. Clark Wallace wanted a wife and the devil sent him Anna. <laughs> these are... Th these, are, these are real, by the way. Okay. Or, or consider this one from Nova Scotia. Here lies Ezekiel Akel, age 102, the good die young. <laughs> or the tombstone of Margaret Daniels at Hollywood Cemetery in Richard, Virginia says this. She always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. <laughs> and one more... Here's one that simply tells a story. Can you imagine this above your gravestone? But this is what it is. With a redhead he did flirt, caught by his wife, now here lies Bert. <laughs> but for, for a serious moment here, just consider, let me ask you, and again, you don't have to say it out loud, but what do you think those closest to you would put on your gravestone. If it was up to your spouse, what do you think he or she would say? If it was up to your children, what do you think they would inscribe? Or back to my original question, what would you like written on your tombstone? Now, that question, that's really a question of purpose, isn't it? Right? Because what do you aspire to be known for? And I really think this is an appropriate question for each of us to ask, especially for fathers on Father's Day. As I mentioned, we're just taking a break here for a moment through our study of 1 Samuel to focus in on what I hope would be an encouraging and helpful message to fathers. But dads, think about it. What do you want to be known for? Or maybe here's, a, here's an even better question. Christian father, as a Christian, what would Jesus want you to be known for? What would Jesus want written about you on your grave marker? For those of you who are Christians, this is, this is just by way of reminder, you, you need to know your life is not your own, right? You've been bought with a price. 
So, so what, what would Jesus want written on your tombstone? Indeed, th- does Jesus even speak to this matter? And if so, what has he said? I think it's a really important question, isn't it? Well, the, well, the good news is, Faith, that we don't have to guess what Jesus would, would say. Th- this Father's Day, we're going to be studying John 15, 1 through 10. And in that text, Jesus reveals, I want to argue, what he would want said of each and every one of his followers. And you know what that is? What Jesus would want said of you, Christian, on your tombstone, is that you would be fruitful. This is to say, Jesus desires that each and every one of his followers would be marked by what fruit is. And think about what fruit is. Namely, fruit is something beautiful, something useful, something that benefits others. And as we're about to see, Jesus goes out of his way to make this point. So naturally, the question becomes, how? How do we live up to this aspiration of Jesus that we would be and bear much fruit? Well, thankfully, Jesus shows us. In John 15, our Lord and Savior employs a rich metaphor, a familiar metaphor, to teach us how we can indeed live a life that is marked by fruitfulness. So if you haven't already, I invite you, friend, to turn with me in your Bibles to John 15. If you need a Bible, we have that black paperback Bible in the chair in front of you, and that's page 901. Follow along with me as I read. Once we read through the text, I'm going to let you more about what the context is. But we're, we're nearing the final, final hours of Jesus' life before he's about to be crucified, and he's been teaching extensively and talking to his disciples, and we're going to pick things up here in verse 1 of chapter 15. Hear now the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That word clean is the same, has the same root word as uh, that we see later on for prune. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
by this my Father is glorified. How is your Father glorified, Jesus? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then hear now these words, Christian, and be encouraged. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's remarkable. And now here's the key, verse 10. He says, so I love you, abide in my love, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen and amen. What great and rich, wonderful words. Uh, as most of you know, nations have symbols that represent their country, right? So, for example, the national symbol for the USA is what? Stars and stripes, yes, but a bald eagle is what I'm looking for here. Bald eagle, okay? Uh, the national symbol for Russia is what? A bear. Very good. How about for England? Who's that lion? Way to go, Pete, a lion. And for our good and friendly neighbors up north, the Canadians, what's the national symbol? A hockey stick. It should be a hockey stick. <laughs> but it's not. It's a what? A maple leaf, right. Well, well, for Israel, you know what their national symbol was? Their national symbol was a vine. At one point in Israel's history, the symbol of a vine was actually placed on their coins. Furthermore, the temple had a huge golden vine over its main doors. In fact, in chapter 14, chapter 14 ends with Jesus saying, rise and let us go up from here. And we learn in chapter 18 that in the passage I just read, Jesus and his disciples are making their way down the Kidron Valley and up the slope of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they were journeying together and Jesus was teaching them, they would have not only seen several vineyards, but they also would have passed the temple one more time, the temple which displayed an enormous golden vine. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus is recorded as saying that this ornate vine of the temple was so large that it was an astonishing sight to spectators. Indeed, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is frequently referred to as a vine. Think of Psalm 80, where the psalmist describes Israel as a vine, quote, brought out of Egypt whom God planted. Or you have the famous song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, where the Lord cares for his vineyard Israel, desiring that it would produce delicious grapes. Okay? Here's really, really one super important detail you need to know about the usage of the vine in the Old Testament, especially if you're going to make sense of what Jesus is saying here, and that's this. As New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has correctly observed, without exception, every time the image of the vine is used in the Old Testament, 
it's always in reference to Israel and their failures. When the Old Testament speaks of Israel as a vine, it's referring to Israel and how they have failed to fulfill what God has called them to do. So in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, we read that although the Lord planted and cared for Israel, they only produced, this, the text says, wild grapes. Then you have Ezekiel 15, which speaks of Israel, is calling it a useless vine, one that is only good to be burned in a fire. Read of similar judgment in Psalm 80, or, or take Jeremiah 2.21, where God says that Israel has turned into a wild, degenerate vine. The vine Israel the Old Testament is showing us, has failed. So now consider Christ's words again, okay? It is in contrast to Israel's failures that Jesus now comes along and says, I am the true vine. Not a vine. I am the true vine. In other words, Jesus is saying that he is and encompasses the true people of God. Jesus is everything Israel should have been but failed at. Where Israel failed, Jesus, the true vine, has been obedient. Now, and this is, let me just press in here just a little bit more for one more second. Some people mistakenly think that the church has replaced Israel as God's people. No. The church hasn't replaced Israel Jesus has. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is everything an obedient, faithful Israelite should have been but failed. Which means now everyone who is united to Christ by faith becomes a branch of that true vine. This includes both Jew and Gentile. Jesus is the true vine and we who are united to him by faith become, can I continue the metaphor, branches. In faith, it's precisely because Jesus is the true vine that he instructs us that the only way for a Christian to produce any kind of fruit, the only way for a Christian to live as God's people is by abiding in him. In fact, the main lesson that we learn from our passage, and here's the main lesson for all of us, but especially I want to press into fathers this morning, and that is this. Jesus teaches a fruitful life must abide in Christ. A fruitful life must abide in Christ. The only way you and I can bear fruit in our lives, the kind of fruit that Israel failed to produce, is by abiding, abiding in the true vine. So if you want your tombstone to read, Christian father, Christian mother, brother, sister, here lives a Christian who is fruitful, who proved, as Jesus says, was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then abide in Christ. So here's the million-dollar question. What does that mean? <laughs> Well, the good news is we don't have to guess. You know what we have to do? We just have to keep reading because Jesus explains himself. That's what, I mean, this makes my job really easy. I got to tell you. I mean, Jesus, he tells you what to do, and then he explains what it means. Look again at what Jesus says there in verse 10. 
According to Jesus, the way we abide in his love. Now, isn't this interesting? The way we abide in his love is by obeying his commands. Did you catch that? The word abide literally means remain. In fact, some of your translations might have the word remain instead of abide. The idea here is that you who have been saved and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, you whom the Father has predestined and has chosen and called to be his own, you whom God has saved, don't depart from your Savior, but remain. Turn, do not turn away from him, but turn to him daily. Rest in his love by obedience. So here's what I want you to see, and this is really, 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 really important. Abiding in Christ is not some mythical, undefinable ex experience. Now, what is it? It's just a mystical thing. I'm, I am, I am abiding. Shh, be quiet. I'm abiding right now. No, Jesus, it's in red ink on your paper, on your Bible. He says, in what great words, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Christian, let your heart soar. And then he says, abide in my love. How? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So abiding is a daily practice of turning to, to Christ resting and rejoicing in his great love for us and saving us, as we sung about this morning. And then in light of that great love, walking in obedience, having his word guide and shape your life. This is what it means to abide in Christ. This is how we, how we bear fruit, by remaining and obeying. Pretty simple. But I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I often don't see the kind of fruitfulness Jesus is talking about. I think many of us at times in our Christian experience, we can struggle to see any kind of real progress in the Christian life. And I'm convinced that one of the chief reasons why myself and maybe other Christians, we lack the progress we want to see in our Christian faith is because we've really forgotten this simple truth that as Jesus articulates, he is the vine and we are the what? Branches. You are not a vine, and you are not the vine dresser. No, in Christ, you are a branch. And as silly as it might seem to keep hammering this point home, you're a branch, you're a branch, you're a branch, we cannot lose sight of this truth. So what I want to do this morning is direct your attention to three important truths concerning what it means to live a fruitful life. And although this applies to all Christians, I want the, the fathers here to give special attention. Men, if I could just speak to you directly, there are fewer things you could do to both honor your Savior and bless your family than putting into practice what Christ teaches in this passage. And I want to say something to, to the fathers before we get to more things. I think the dads in this church are doing an awesome job. 
I want to commend the men of this church. Not only the dads, but the grandfathers as well. Guys, I see you excelling. And I want to encourage you to excel even more. And I hope that as we walk through this passage, this is going to encourage your hearts and motivate you to continue to press on in your journey as a Christian husband, father, and church member. Way to go, guys. Okay? So notice the first thing that I want to say, I want you to see, rather, is that a fruitful life is dependent on Christ. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Jesus makes it pretty clear. And he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, nothing. Look, look faith, there's no gray area here. Jesus is clear, apart from him, believers cannot bear the fruit Christ wants us to have. And you know why that is. And this is important. It's because a Christian's relationship to Jesus is based on the contact principle, not the fill-up principle. Let me tell you what I mean. In the 2010 Winter Olympics, they were held in Vancouver, British Columbia. And from what I'm told, the transportation during the Olympics went very, very well. And this is because Vancouver had a very effective electric trolley system. And I have a picture of one of the trolleys here up on the screen. As you can see, on top of the bus are some tall yellow rods. Do you see those? Those are rods that connect to power lines. And in order for these buses to run, they must stay in constant contact with the power source. The moment they disconnect from the power line, that's the moment the buses stop running. This is to say, when they disconnect, they stop doing what they were designed to do. Well, faith, so it is with us as the branches and Jesus as the true vine. Just as those buses cannot do what they were designed to do apart from the power lines, so too we as branches cannot do what we are saved to do, bear fruit apart from abiding in the true vine, Jesus. The Christian's relationship to Christ is based on the contact principle, not the fill-up principle. What I mean is, we don't come to church on Sunday morning to get filled up and hope that that provides us with enough strength and fuel to get throughout the week. Your car may work up on the, on the fill-up principle, but Christian, you do not. Cars do that, branches don't. Branches need the constant source of life and nourishment from the vine. Let me just apply this just for a moment. This also means that time does not produce fruit. I've been a Christian for a long, long time. God was so good to save me as a young kid. I didn't deserve it, but he did. In other words, I've been a branch for a long time. And there's a real danger for those of us who have been branches for a long time to think that we can bear fruit on our own 
just with time elapsing. But you know what? We can't. Nor can you bear fruit by focusing your attention on bearing fruit. Please don't miss this. Trying to bear fruit is not the way to bear fruit. No, the way to bear fruit is by abiding in Christ, which means resting in his love and obeying his commands. And the fruit comes as we walk in obedience. Do you hear me? That's when the fruit is displayed. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says fruit? What's he talking about? Well, to be true, he really doesn't exactly say, does he? But you're all smart. (laughs) It's not hard to figure out, is it? Fruit is anything that is expressed in the branch that wouldn't be there apart from its connection to the vine. So take, for example, a grapevine. I have a picture of one here. As you can see, it's not too hard to figure out what kind of fruit the branches of a grapevine produce, correct? The branches from a grape bear grapes. The branches from an apple tree bear And the branches from the vine of Christ bear Christ. His likeness, his character, his actions. As the true vine, Jesus is everything the people of God should be. So naturally then, as I'm abiding in him, which means resting and obeying, his likeness will come through in my life. This is the fruit Jesus is talking about. So, so notice, another clarification. Well, uh, Jesus doesn't describe us as gas tanks in a car that need to be filled up in order to run. We're not that. Nor are we pipes. Engineers will, will tell us that pipes are designed to have water pass through them without the water impacting or changing the pipe. That's not the way it is with branches, is it? You see, the sap thro- flows through the branch and changes the very nature of the branch so that the branch takes on the nature of the vine. The life of Christ that flows through us is meant to change us into his likeness. So this is why Paul in Galatians speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Christ's likeness, this fruit is serving in the church. Fruit is saying no to sin and temptation. Fruit is any expression of the reality that Jesus is alive and at work in my life. Okay, so so the point number one is you can't do it by yourself. You're not a pipe, you're not a gas tank, you're a branch. You need to be connected. And we're united to Christ through faith. But there's this admonition, this encouragement to continue to abide and to rest in Him. But then second, Jesus also teaches that a fruitful life is subjected to the Father's purpose. A fruitful life is subjected, meaning you are under the Father's purpose. Notice what Jesus says in verse 1 and 3. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is who? The vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Then in verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers when the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. So um, as many of you know, I have family that is in Southern California, lived there for a good part of my life, and I, I recently heard about a pastor who visited uh, the wine country up in Northern California, Napa Valley. And during his tour, he went into one of the vineyards, and he was really astonished and taken back by how lush and beautiful and full each vine branch was. And as he examined the vines, he quickly noticed that there was not a wasted branch. Each branch was tall, full, and lush with fruit. However, the branches didn't get that way on their own. No, the fruitfulness of each branch in that vineyard was the result of the careful, intensive labor of the vine dresser. As you know, branches require a lot of work. In fact, when that pastor looked down on the vine floor, he was equally amazed at all the branch clippings that had been pruned. And you know what? These clippings looked healthy. The leaves looked beautiful. Beautiful things, beautiful leaves were cut off. And those clippings represented hours of careful pruning. Well, Jesus in this metaphor identified God as the vine dresser, right? And as a vine dresser, God does two things. He removes fruitless branches and he prunes fruitful branches. Indeed, those branches that don't bear fruit, he gathers and throws into the fire. So the entire vine is subjected to what the vine dresser wants to do with the branches. Tracking with me? You see, a vine branch is useless unless it produces fruit. You can't make furniture out of wood from a vine branch. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, it says that you cannot even make a peg to hang something from a vine branch. So that's where the vine dresser removes the fruitless branches. He burns them. Now, some of you might be wondering, and some people suggest that verse 2 means that a Christian can lose his or her salvation. Just want to say a quick word about that. I don't think that's the case because that puts verse 2 in direct opposition to everything Jesus has said already in the Gospel of John. So it can't be that. I mean, think about it. Jesus repeatedly said that he will never lose those whom the Father has given to him, John 6. He also promised that those who believe in him will not come into judgment and they will never perish, John 10. So, so what does verse 2 actually mean then? Well, I understand verse 2 to be one of several verses in the Gospel of John that shows us, and Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13, that not all who follow Jesus for a time and hear his teaching are genuine believers. I mean, look at the end of chapter 6, verse 66. Judas, perfect example of this. So, if I could press in here for a moment, friend, for those of you who know about Jesus, for those of you who are intrigued about Jesus and his teachings, yet you're failing to put your trust in him, be warned, friend. 
There is a coming judgment. You have a soul that will never die. Your sin has earned you death and destruction for an eternity in hell, but God has made a way through Christ. Don't put it off. Put your faith, go all in to trust that Christ's work is sufficient to save you. And for the Christian, know this, that if you are fruitful, you will not be spared the pruning knife of the vine dresser. You will experience the cut of his knife. You are subjected to the Father's purpose for your life. And you know why that is? It's because God is not after good-looking leaves. God is after fruit. This is why that pastor who went to Napa Valley, he was astonished at all these good-looking leaves on the ground. Why would a vine dresser cut him off? Because he's not concerned about the appearance. He's concerned about the fruit. And oh, how we need to understand this. So often, and I, I guilty as charged, so often we perceive the difficult circumstances in our lives as a sign that God really doesn't care for us or love us. Nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Very often, God brings difficult circumstances and difficult people into our lives so as to prune our hearts from our idols, so as to make us more fruitful for God. You know, we often, do we not, do we often pray as Christians that God would make us more like Jesus? Yet how often then do we ask God to remove the very thing he's brought into our life to accomplish that? Right? The other day, for example, I was out doing something when the Lord brought a person, a stranger, across my path who made my life really, really difficult. They didn't realize it, but everything they did inconvenienced me in a significant way. Ever have that happen to you before? Ever come across those people? Don't say it out loud, right? You know what I did? This, this, they didn't know they were being difficult. At first, I got upset internally, grumbling in my heart. But then it hit me. You know what God was doing in that moment? He was pruning me. He was pruning my idol of comfort. That's what he's doing. He's showing me just how truly selfish I really am. So often I can believe my own PR. That I'm a great guy. And then God allows these things in my life, this pruning knife, to show me my selfishness. He was cutting me with his pruning knife. And faith, we need to have eyes to see this. Recognize, Christian, that slow driver in front of you when you're running late, that's the pruning knife of God making you more patient. That difficult person in your life, that's the pruning knife of God to make you more loving. That illness which sucks the life out of you, that's the pruning knife of God to make you more dependent on him to show you how satisfying he can be. Married couples, 
that annoying habit of your spouse. That's the pruning knife of your father to make you more gracious and kind. In fact, just take a moment and think of all the ways God is working in your life to rid you of your self-centered idols. God is good. But often in our natural state, if we're not meditating on God's perspective, we don't see these things as a good pruning knife to make us more fruitful. We can say, God doesn't love me. He doesn't care for me. No, so faith, when the painful pruning knife of God comes upon you, do not spear, but rejoice. Because look, if you're being pruned, it's because God loves you and he wants you to be more like Jesus. He wants you to be more like his son. And look, this is a lot easier said than done, right? But friend, man, if we're going to, I mean, does it not make sense now when we read Jesus' words here, why then James would say, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds? Does it not make more sense now when Peter writes, even now for a little while you rejoice, even though now you're experiencing trials of different kinds? The reason why the biblical authors rejoice at such things is because they know they're under the pruning knife of God. God sees them as fruitful and he wants them to be more fruitful. I don't know what Monday will hold for you or Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't know what maybe difficulty you might experience, but Christian, can I encourage us as a church to say, to first see, this could be from God. His pruning hand to make me more like Jesus. Receive it. Don't spurn it. And finally, what I want you to see, Christian, is that a fruitful life is God glorifying. Look at again, verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So yes, I'm going to use a server illustration, bear with me, but one of the things, and Grant could testify this, and anyone who's, who's served in a higher-end restaurant will know that wine reps would come in and they would frequently do wine tasting for all the staff. So we would taste the wines, these expensive bottles of wine, so then we could know how to feature and to sell it to each table and make a good recommendation. And one of the things that I learned from all these wine tastings is that the vine dresser's reputation was dependent on the quality of the fruit. So the guy whose label it was, his reputation was totally predicated on the quality of the fruit. Certain labels of wine were either praised or dismissed based on the quality of the fruit. Well, just as a good crop of fruit brings praise to the vineyard owner, so too the fruit we bear as Christians brings honor and glory to God. Amen? As it should be. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. As a branch, your fruit glorifies and ought to glorify God and not yourself. Amen? Don't miss this. You can live a life that glorifies the Father. Furthermore, when God's people truly abide in Jesus, 
when his words abide in them, they will desire what he desires and will pray according to his words. And those words and those prayers will be pleasing to him. This is what I believe Jesus is getting at in verse 7. A person who is remaining in Christ, who's resting in his love and seeking to obey his commands, that person's prayer and desires is going to be in tune with God the Father's. So faith, this is what it means to live a fruitful life. It's dependent on Christ. It's subjected to the Father's purpose. And it brings honor and glory to God. And Christian, the only reason you and I can bear fruit is because Jesus, the true vine, lived the perfect life we failed to live, then died the death we deserved to die for our sins, and then rose again. Hear me, Christian. We can bear fruit because the first fruit of all creation rose from the dead. Amen? So the next time you visit the cemetery, take note of each tombstone. Maybe you'll find some fun <laughs> words on those tombstones like we started with. But you'll notice, no matter what's said, each and every grave marker, each and every tombstone, they have one thing in common. You know what that one thing is? A dash. Here lies so-and-so, you know, 1940 to 2000 and whatever, there's a dash. And although that dash looks rather insignificant, in reality, that dash represents the sum of that entire person's life. Faith, what will your dash represent? Fathers, what will your dash represent? What will you be known for? My prayers that would be said of us that our dash represented a fruitful life. Amen? Let's pray.